So kids, you are dismissed to Gospel Project and also volunteers. Thank you for your time and effort, volunteers. We appreciate you. If you were with us last week, we looked at a rather important uh, passage from Colossians. And as promised, each week we're going to begin our time together, particularly the message, uh, and taking some time to read that text. So, my dear friend, uh, Roger Wood is going to read for us from Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Thank you, Roger. Um, what a in, um, dense text that we looked at last week, so we continue to strongly encourage. Uh, kind of made a commitment last week, if you want. It's up to you to memorize, particularly verses 15 through 20. Uh, it's been really encouraging me for this week because several people have stopped me as they see me. Hey, hey, I've got this many verses down, and they'll try to recite it. And so that's deeply encouraging. And each and every week, we're going to read that text. Uh, just as a way to rehearse the truths of the scriptures, uh, primarily in regards to who Christ is. Uh, I think it's a healthy practice. If you don't, well, you only get me for a few more weeks, and then we're done. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it's a really healthy practice for us, so you'll see that each week. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 is where we'll be today. So if you do have your Bibles, please feel free to turn there, um, our cell phones as well. That way you can hide your Pokemon Go. But anyway... Um, <laughs> Yeah, some of you get that. That's good. Uh, good morning. It's, I'm so grateful to be with you this morning. And uh, be prayerful as we walk through today. Uh, I, have, I have anticipated this day particularly uh, a good bit. So I just, I'm just asking you to be prayerful as we talk and as we uh, look through the text today. But uh, one of my favorite things to do uh, is go on daddy-daughter date night. It's a ton of fun. So if you're a dad and you kind of regularly plan these times, you know how significant they are for your little girl, right? So Avery, my daughter, she loves to get dressed up and try all kind of new things. So a few months ago, we attended my first ever, and hers as well, uh, our first symphony. And if truth be told, I've kind of always wanted to go. It's just now I finally have someone who can appreciate the finer things in life with me. Um, <laughs> Well, no, that was not a slam on my wife. No, no, it's not at all. Not at all. Um, 
But more importantly, what she helps, she kind of, it, it, she helps me not look like a dweeb, so that's kind of helpful, uh, but rather look like a thoughtful dad. I can't tell you how many people are like, oh, you're bringing your daughter to the symphony. He's like, yeah, I am. Uh, I'm a good dad, right? Right? Um, but nonetheless, an interesting thing occurred, because I had never been before. Um, before the orchestra began to play, a member of the orchestra came out, stood on stage before the rest of the musician, and played a note. I believe it was an A. And then the entire orchestra tuned in to that note. This particular symphony Avery and I attended used a violinist, but I hear it's traditionally an oboe, if you care to know. <laughs> At first, I sat there as a rookie attendee, and I thought to myself, hmm, has this lady went rogue? This is going to get interesting. Is she flexing her musical muscles? Like, oh, nice. Maybe this is more intriguing than I thought. But it only took a few moments as the rest of the instruments joined in and finally hit that note to realize what was happening. They all synced to one person. That one note just before beginning to ensure that there were no kind of out-of-tune moments. Imagine how dreadful it would sound as a key moment for an, or for an instrument to abrasively be out of tune. It would be as if you were in that classic moment of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You know what I'm talking about? Bum, 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 bum. You guys heard that? Yeah, there you go. You're in that classic moment, bum, 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 ah. Whoa, what in the world just occurred? I wonder if that is how it sounded to Paul when Epaphras shows up and begins to tell him how the church at Colossae was sinking to multiple beliefs, each of them which were far from that single note that had been declared to them through Epaphras. That note that Paul had suffered for, that note which is Christ, we sat around last week. That is the single note that we sink our lives up to. It is Christ that Epaphras had stood before the Colossians and played so beautifully. And they, in hearing that message, set their lives with it. They sink into that message about Christ. So this morning, it is, it is to those issues, deviations, and heresies that we turn. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, I kind of like to call the setup. So let me read this to you. For I, which this is Paul talking, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What is Paul saying so that they would not be deluded with plausible arguments? Well, it, this may not be a surprise to you, but yet it's another solid statement of who Christ is and what he has done. Once again, like we started last week, to establish Christ 
as their foundation for everything, even practice. And here's what's interesting, the ability to discern what is plausible or not. So what does he say in particular? Two things that strike me. One is God's mystery, which he says is Christ. More specifically, in chapter 1, verse 27, you can look at that later, he actually says, Christ in you. So there is this mysterious union, this mysterious relationship between them, and I would also say us, and Christ. That's described by Paul many times throughout Colossians and a lot of his letters as being in Christ. This is mysterious. This is something that's a bit unique about our relationship with this person called Jesus, the God-man. We're in him. There's this mysterious union and relationship. So this, in turn, kind of leads to the very next statement, because he describes Christ a little further. Here's what he says about this person, Christ, the God-man that we're in union with. Here's what he says. In whom, who, Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You and I are in union with the God-man by which, just so you know, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Well, wisdom, what is that? The capacity to understand and to function. Knowledge, which is the comprehension or intellectual grasp of the world around you. So here's what Paul is saying. Since Christ is in you, and he is wisdom and knowledge, then guess what? You have the ability to discern right and wrong. You have the ability to know the nature of our existence, the ability to function properly, the ability to simply know, the ability to comprehend. In essence, since Christ is in you, and he's wisdom and knowledge, then he guards you against being deluded in church, he guards us. Well, what is exactly that is deluding the Colossians. What, what is the, the heresy? What is the deviation? What is the issue? Well, perhaps before we look at the particulars, maybe it's worth a few moments just simply to discuss what in the world is a heresy? Well, Paul never actually uses the word heresy or false doctrine here. Like Peter does in 2 Peter very emphatically. Paul doesn't, but rather he calls it philosophy full of empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, which we'll get there in a moment. That's really much what he calls it. But what is clear, and why they are deemed heresy, is because they teach doctrinal errors that reject the truth of Scripture, namely about Christ. They are false ideals about doctrine, about God, about Christ and his atoning work, and about the nature of things. See, that's a heresy. It's a false ideal about God, and here in particular, once again, particularly about Christ. Why is this important? Why all this talk about ideals, about who Christ is? Why is it so important that we understand what we believe and think about Christ? Why take 15 through 20 to lay down a summary of who Christ is? Why should we care? about false statements about God. 
Why should we be constantly looking through what we believe? Well, I don't know if you know this, but all ideals have consequences. All thinking will naturally find its way into practice. You see, ideals are powerful. They drive the way that we view the world around us. They determine and define for us how things will happen and how we interpret events, especially how we see ourselves and how we see the world around us. So still, why is this important to know? Why is it so important for us to know the ideals that we have? And are they on the right track? Well, I don't know if you know this, but have you ever heard of Magnetic North? Some of you heard that? All right. A super helpful way to navigate. But I don't know if you're aware of this. That's actually not true north. Have you guys ever heard that before? You have Magnetic North and you have True North. There's roughly about 500 miles between the two points. That's not the same thing. It's about 500 miles between the two. Sure, magnetic north, north will get you headed into the right direction, but it still does not make it accurate enough to navigate fully, such as planes. No one wants to hear the pilot come over the speakers and say, hey, today... I thought I'd take my chances with Magnetic North. I know it's not true North, but let me just take my chances today and let's just see what happens. You're banking on their ability, or at least the instrument's ability, to distinguish between Magnetic North and true North, to calculate the difference and remain on course. You see, most of us unknowingly adopt a philosophical ideal about the world around us. What I mean is we have foundational truths that shape our lives, whether we know them or not. The unfortunate reality is most Christians is that we don't know them. Most Christians sometimes just don't think. The old saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. It's never more true than for Christians. You see, thinking is not an option. As one scholar put it, to not think is unthinkable. We must do the hard work of examining our ideals about ourselves, about the world around us, and see if they're deviations from our true north. Christ. What is at stake? I think a life of frustration. And ultimately, living a life as a functional atheist. Because you're not following God. You're not following our true north. You're not following Christ. And for the believer, that would be deeply frustrating. You see, Christ is our philosophy. He guides us about the foundational truths of the world around us and about ourselves. Our knowing him, cognitively, brain, and experiences, Give us the best understanding. Well, what are these heresies that are in Colossae? Now, I beg of you to hang with me here, okay? There's a lot here, and there is a tremendous amount that we could unpack, but what I want to try to do for the next few moments is to try to give some summaries around what is happening here at the church, just for us to be able to say, what does that mean for us today? So here's what we know. Here are some summaries. 
See, this next section, starting in verse 16, it gives us many details, perhaps even direct quotes from these false teachers. So let's read that together. I know it's a big chunk, but I want you to hear this. Verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision not made without hands, but putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Well, it seems that these false teachers are taking them captive through philosophy that's full of empty deceit, which is according to human tradition, which is according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to to Christ. These things seem to be what is driving all the wrong thinking. And all, just to reiterate, are not according to Christ. What about philosophy? Well, this would seem to hit at humans' understanding of the nature of things. See, Paul says rather directly that this particular philosophy is according to human tradition. So the clear point here is that it's grounded on human understanding rather than Christ, who as Paul set up the section with, right, is wisdom. See, Christ is wisdom. Paul says this philosophy is full of empty deceit. He's almost saying that its purpose is to deceive. Well, secondly, he calls it human tradition. It would seem that these false teachers were claiming their teachings were ancient and thereby giving it validity. A real cunning deception to lure and entice the church to consider its philosophy, its understanding of things spiritual. But it is empty when it does not have the aroma of Christ permeating its every teaching. You see, it is empty when it does not have the aroma of Christ permeating every one of its teachings. Well, lastly, it's all of this is according to elemental spirits. There's a bit divided here of what this means. Is this spiritual things, demonic principalities, etc., or earthly things? Basic elements, earth, wind, fire, water, which we know from Greek mythology, maybe you do or don't, they personified these things, right? They worshiped these things. They gave them names. Water, Poseidon, right? No, no, okay. They personified them, and they made these earthly things somewhat 
spiritual and they worship. But there is a sense that these false teachers are deriving their teaching from a source, whether supernatural or earthly, other than Christ. That's the main point. They have made creative things their source of true understanding of the world around them. Also, the means by which they enter into God's presence. And unfortunately, the means by which they are made well. This is why Paul says that God made them alive. They were dead. And nothing could revive them except God. God put off their deadness. And made them alive, here's this union again, together with Christ. Through what? The forgiveness of sins. Something that this philosophy and human tradition cannot do. Another characteristic is they made this philosophy, human traditions, elemental spirits, mediators between them and God. Perhaps this is why Paul goes to great lengths to establish Christ as a creator in chapter 1. It would be best to worship and consult the creator rather than the creation. To take his word on things not meant. Especially in contrast to how Paul sets up the entire section. There is no one more full of wisdom and mystery than Christ. Who is God in the flesh? Do you need any more mystery? You want something chalked full of awe and is mysterious? Look no further. Christ is. If you're looking for the final say on things, the ultimate authority will look no further. The one who is superior to all elemental spirits, who is Christ. This is precisely what Paul is saying in verse 9, which he says what? For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. See, Paul completely dismantles human understanding by exalting Christ. And he concludes this section in verse 15 by saying this, He, God, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. One commentator put it this way, Any teachings that challenge the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ are to be unmasked to reveal their true nature as personal spiritual sources that threaten the Christian community. Paul wants to unmask them for what they are and their inability to do in them what only Christ can do. Well, let's read the next section to get more of what's happening. This is where we start to see more of the uh, practice that they're involved in. So verse 16. So therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or the Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. 
if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world? Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that are all perishing as they use. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see, in the preceding verses that we've read, Paul gives them Christ, Christ, and more Christ. And now here he turns to their right to reject the pressures that they're feeling from these false teachers. In essence, he's reminding them of their freedom they have in Christ. So the first imperative, the first statement is, let no one pass judgment on you by placing unnecessary restrictions with things that do not and will not compare newsflash to Christ. He refutes everything with coming back to Christ. You see, these things, they were but shadows of what was to come in Christ. See, Christ has come. He is real. He's not a shadow. These regulations of old are unnecessary. God has come in bodily form. Christ is not fictional. He is not mere or a mere intellectual ascent. He walked, he breathed, he lived, he died, and he rose from the grave to live again. Why run to shadows when you can have the real thing? The second imperative, let no one disqualify you. Let no one take away what Christ has sufficiently done on the cross. Brother and sister, nobody can take that away from you. Let no one take away what Christ has sufficiently done for you on the cross. See, Paul counters this disqualifying with Christ is our head. He's our authority. Not your ability to control your desires, that's asceticism, nor angels, which God created, or grand visions. Who needs a grander vision than the God-man? Who needs a better vision than the invisible becoming visible? No, Christ is our authority, the one who has the right to declare us righteous, the one that has the ability to declare us righteous, and therefore our nourishment is from him. Not how well we perform. We grow because he nourishes. Then Paul moves from these two imperatives, very strong statements, to a reality that we have in Christ, which is we have died to those elemental spirits that are speaking non-truths. See this union with Christ that we get to enjoy all the benefits of being connected with him, one of which we have died to those things. So the appropriate question is now, why 
do you still act and live as if you have not? Why do you submit to lesser authorities with their silly and unworthy regulations? You see, Christ is the real thing. He has come. I have to think that in, a, in kind of a mocking fashion, Paul gives us some of the tenets of this deviation, some of the practices that these false teachers were given. And he says this, and I, I just I have to hear him going, do not handle, do not touch, do not touch. That's, that's how I hear him here. Whether he did that or not, I don't know. But that's how I hear it. Do not handle, do not taste. Do not touch. And just for a little added punch, let's put a parenthesis here and let's clarify what these things are. Referring to things that will perish as their use. <laughs> it's just so comical to me. If you use them and you rely upon them, they perish. These human precepts and teachings will not last. They have an appearance of wisdom but does not stop the indulgence of the flesh. Does not have the ability to kill the flesh and right the heart. Only the God-man from Colossians 1, 15 to 20, can accomplish such a feat. Only those words that we read about God in the flesh can accomplish such a feat. No mere intellectual understanding of the world around us, our human tradition, philosophy, elemental spirit, none of that answers our ills and our sickness in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I must ask, is what you are doing or thinking in regards to Christian practice, is it placing your trust and dependence on Christ? The natural result as I read this and what God starts to do in my heart is, hey, you, is what you're doing or thinking in regards to your Christian practice. Is it placing trust and dependence on Christ? In the effort to kind of explore that question, I have a few thoughts. Holy moly, it's late. Um, oh, um, I prayed pretty diligently about this next section. Because I wanted to say, oh, that's good. Where does this intersect our world? Well, here's a couple things to consider. Um, so uh, today's kind of heresies are issues. I'm not saying all of these things are heretical and wrong statements about God, but I do think they're, they're issues that draw us away from the gospel, that draw us away from the reality that we have in Christ. Well, a few years ago, uh, Lauren and I went on a trip with her family to Sedona. We were staying at a hotel up by the airport. Beautiful unbelievably beautiful place. So after we finished all the details of checking in, one of the workers helping me, or helping all of us, he asked if we would like a map of all the vortexes in Sedona. I mean, this was kind of out of left field for me, and I was like, sure. I was rather intrigued. <laughs> what is a vortex? He made an attempt to tell me that they are places of healing, good energy spots. Um, I still was a bit unsure exactly what he meant, and so I looked into it. Here's a formal uh, explanation from a website devoted to this. Uh, the energy from these vortexes saturates the whole area in and around Sedona and can be noticed in a subtle but general way uh, anywhere around town. So if you go to a specific vortex, uh, the energy is the strongest there. So what happens? Well, the subtle energy that exists at these locations interacts with who a person is inside. The energy resonates with 
and strengthens the inner being of each person that comes within about a quarter to a half a mile of it. Get close, and you're good. This resonance happens because the vortex energy is very similar to the subtle energy operating in the energy centers inside each person. If you're at all a sensitive person, it is easy to feel the energy at these vortexes. This is extremely typical of New Age spiritualism. And even more typical of a postmodern society, uh, that one scholar put it this way, a postmodern society wants spirituality, wants significance, they want belonging, consolation, that's the word, against the impersonal nature of modern life. It frankly does not care how outlandish or irrational the answer might be, so long as it fills those needs. See, New Age spiritualism rejects the belief that God is distant or distinct from his creation. It rejects the belief that God is distinct from his creation, but equates the universe with God, which, interestingly enough, is no new ideal, but exactly what pantheists think. Therefore, this implies that we all have claim to deity, and we create our own reality. You see, ideals have consequences. And in this set of beliefs, there's no need for Christ. Matter of fact, they believe Jesus was a religious extremist, derived his teachings from spiritual masters in India, or even that he did survive the cross and he journeyed to the east after that event. Huh. He was no more God than you and I, but what he did do is attain a level of enlightenment known as Christ consciousness. So our task is to do what he did and become what he become. See, this is common around here, especially where beauty abounds in the creation around us. One can easily see the deviation that occurs when we exalt the creation over the creator. The best effort one can do to make things right is connect with the creation in a powerful way to uplift the inner being, to only feel better for a few days. They don't account for sin. Matter of fact, they think it's an illusion. And really our problem is ignorance of our own divinity. So... Center yourself with the energy source and acknowledge your inner divine nature. Paul would have none of that. For he has clearly stated that Christ is fully God and makes peace through his shed blood. You see the difference in that thinking? You see the, the, the following that will get you miles away from true north. See, Christ is creator and far more worthy of our attention. Well, I think the ideal of autonomy, we, we've actually mentioned that quite a few times from this very stage. See, modernity brand, began the notion that humans are self-governing and we're free to choose their own direction. Now we sit more in a postmodern world that says people are the product of their culture and only imagine they're self-governing. Whether you imagine it or not, the general temperature of the West is that we are only accountable to us. The nature of success is dependent on us, no one else. So therefore, the nature of my spiritual understanding is left up to me. I am free to pull from whatever and whomever I please as it makes sense to me. I can even disregard some scripture while I champion others. So we come up with things such as God only helps those who help themselves. Really? Individualism, consumerism, has deeply affected the Christian, deeply hinders our growth. One who lives in autonomy 
trust their own emotions, self-understanding over Scripture. They treat others how they have been treated rather than how they want to be treated. They become so enamored with self that it actually becomes a detriment to their relationships. I was surprised to find one can be labeled by a psychiatrist as a narcissist. That's a thing now. Overindulgence in self is such a problem, doctors label it and then treat it. I'm not sure how you treat that other than stop thinking about yourself. You can become so autonomous that it's actually dangerous to you. Also, in this thinking, one does not need to commit to church. It's an option. This is no more evident than a billboard I heard of recently promoting a church's um, online streaming. Here's the tagline, go to church at home. I'm like, is that possible? Like, go to church at home? Well, let's move on. Perhaps another issue for us today in our culture, as I prayerfully consider these things, uh, is the message of the American dream. Now, important and has a lot of good understanding about work ethic, but the tiny nuance and possible deviation that occurs is when it becomes our ultimate gauge of success. When it becomes our ultimate goal and drives all of our actions rather than Christ. What do I mean? Well, if I could, in the very short few minutes I have left, be a little honest. Here's what God's been doing in me about this. As we figure out the next stage of life, we have no clue. I am absolutely clueless to what's next for us. And as I think about my family, As a dad, and a husband, and a man, I want stability for my family. I want to know what's next. And as I begin to think about that, I realize that am I depending on stability by having a plan? Am I depending on stability because I know the next move? I know the next house we'll live in. And for my daughter, as I look at her and I look at my son and I was like, oh man, I don't want to like drag them from place to place. It gives me the incredible opportunity to teach her comfort is found in Christ. I just wonder if culturally I have bought into the ideal that my stability is based upon me knowing what's next. I wonder if it's permeated a little bit and it's deviated me from the gospel to say, no, my greatest comfort and stability is in Christ. Comfort is not in my bank account. Comfort is in Christ. Lastly, works and performance. Uh, As much as we try to guard against earning God's favor, it continually finds its way back into our thinking. It is difficult to understand sinful man redeemed. That's hard to grasp. And the culture we live in has a hard time with grace. See, he, Christ, the God-man shed blood, is what reconciles us. And newsflash is a better work than anything you can do or will ever do. Rest in his work and then live in freedom to do your work. So a couple things to conclude with. Ultimately, I have to ask again, is what you are doing or thinking placing your trust and dependence on Christ? This perhaps could be the best question you could ask yourself this week. 
in regards to your Christian practice? Is what you're doing or thinking placing a complete, utter dependence on Christ for all things? Secondly, be vigilant about what you believe about God, who Christ is, and what he, do, what he has done. Be vigilant about what you believe about God, who Christ is, and what he has done. Ideals have consequences. And if they're wrong, the consequences are stiff. Be vigilant about what you believe about God, who Christ is, and what he has done. <laughs> Lastly, Salvation is through Christ alone, our worthy mediator. So our reconciliation is through the shed blood of Christ. That should color our view of ourselves and the world around us. Christ should so permeate every area of my life that it colors the way I see everything. As we progress through this book, you're going to see how true that statement is. Let's pray. Father God, grateful for our time together this morning. As I prepared and, and looked through um, this text, there's many moments I felt so inadequate to fully grasp and understand what was going on. But Lord, I trust that as we spent time in your word, the scripture says that it is alive and active. So I trust that it has been alive among us and it has been active and penetrating our thinking, and helping us to examine our ideals and see how close they are to true north. Father, may we as a church sink to that one note, Christ, and live in accordance to that. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.